Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack, one of your favourite presenting duos on today. Don't tell Alex I said that. But I've got Charlie with me. Hello, Mrs. White. How are you doing? I'm very good. We are the dynamic duo, aren't we, Zach? We do our best. Who have we got with us today? We have got Dr. Claire Jones with us today. She's Senior Lecturer in the History of Medicine at the University of Kent. Her edited collection, Rethinking Modern Prostheses in Anglo-American Commodity Cultures, 1820 to 1939, is available via Manchester University Press. She's also author of The Medical Trade Catalogue in Britain, 1870 to 1914, and, as, as she's a busy girl, The Business of Birth Control, Contraceptive and Commerce Before the Sexual Revolution. And that is what she's going to talk to us about today. Hello, Claire. Hi. Thanks for having me. So contraception, let's, let's kind of get straight into the, the nitty gritty of this. It, it's a fairly obvious thing to say that it changes quite fundamentally in terms of sheer accessibility over the course of the last 250 years. So at the beginning of the period that you study, what are the options when it comes to birth control? Well, I think it's important, first of all, to say that throughout history, throughout time, um, there is evidence of people across the world trying to control their fertility. So that's, of course, trying to enhance it in various ways, but also trying to limit it um, in lots of ways. Um, But I'm a modern historian, so I focus primarily on sort of mid 18th century onwards and from the mid 18th century until the end of the 19th century there are probably a surprising number of contraceptives available and methods of birth control available for people so the most simple probably the most widely used um, were the non-mechanical methods like abstinence there's no surer way of um, 
preventing pregnancy than not having sex. So there's that. Um, and also the withdrawal or coitus interrupters, um, those methods. And so they probably throughout, in, in, even into the 20th century, remain the most commonly used birth control methods. Also, um, for women, abortifacants in various forms were also available, in, certainly in England from around the 16th century. In the early 19th century, um, all sorts of different methods were used, bloodletting, emetics, mercury, oil of juniper, body blows to, to the pregnant body, instruments like knitting needles um, also used to procure an abortion as well as the kind of the emergence of more commercially orientated and euphemistically titled female pills um but rigorous bike riding taking an extremely hot bath there, there are other things that um, women might might do might use to to procure an, an, an abortion it's, it's difficult um given the nature of the subject to, to um evaluate how widespread these practices were but what's interesting I think is up until around the mid 19th century lots of um, ab abortion in the early stages wasn't considered such and was considered contraception particularly among the working classes because it, um, the fetus wasn't considered to be a living being until it was quickened at, at between around eight, 40 to 80 days so with the Offences Against the Persons Act in 1861, that made it illegal for women to um, procure an abortion herself, although it's clear that it didn't really stop the practice and certainly backstreet abortionists operated well into the 20th century. So, um, yeah, abortion was used as a form of contraception. And related to this is obviously, sadly, infanticide when contraception didn't work. So when we see kind of failed um abortion methods we see rises in infanticide in terms of kind of devices there were things like sea sponges soaked in vinegar syringes douches that were um, aimed at kind of blocking using as a barrier method within the vagina or or um, cleaning out the vagina with water or disinfectant and there were also evidence of hard rubber rings that had been used um, as vaginal supports, um, uterus supports, but were actually also used um, as barrier methods um, by women. In terms of methods for men, obviously we have condoms or what were actually called sheaths at the time, and they were available from at least the 16th century. Before the advent of rubber, these were most commonly made from animal intestines, so they could be very thin, a bit like sausage casings tied with ribbon that these were very expensive and so were often only available to those who could afford them um, and actually were more typically used for protection against venereal disease and for birth control so famously James Boswell who was uh, the biographer of Samuel Johnson and a, a notable frequenter of prostitutes described sheets as armour although they seemingly didn't protect him very much as um, he got VD at least 17 times and was, it was a main contribution to his death in 1795 at the age of 55. We see some changes um, in the late 19th century with new forms of kind of rubber production and chemical manufacturing. So we see the emergence of surgical caps, diaphragms and chemical pessaries, as well as rubber sheaths. And so there's also, uh, alongside that, a small growth in demand among the middle classes for these. And 
we, we see a noticeable decline in fertility at that time until around the 1940s. And this is reported in the media as a kind of moral panic about the decline of the British race and, and things like that. And historians have, have called this the, the fertility decline. And also at this time, you have neo-Malthusians and eugenicists popularising the idea of birth control among the middle classes. Um, and so there's this, there's this shift in the late 19th century where um, birth control methods start to become slightly more popular, although they're definitely not widespread. Um, and the extent to which specific methods were adopted and by whom is still under much heavily debate um, among historians at the moment. So it's very much a live topic. Can I just pick up on what you were saying there about infanticide? Because um, I remember mm -hmm. reading about this kind of stuff when I was doing my undergrad, particularly in the context of France, and you know the, the lack of support networks that they are, there are for women. Do you see much in the way of a transition as a, just a hint of um, support networks begin to be put in place away from infanticide and towards you know handing over children that, that women are just for a whole variety of reasons not able to look after um you don't there's i mean there are charitable initiatives certainly um that try and um stop um, infanticide but by largely um, taking in children so foundling hospitals for example um, uh, but there isn't really anything that we would see as state support until well, the mid 20th century where we see the illegitimacy act because I think illegitimacy is really tightly linked to the subject of infanticide so children that were born um, illegitimately outside marriage they they obviously known as bastards um, and didn't legally have any parents. Um, these were the children that were most at risk at infanticide simply because there was no way that a, mother, a single mother could financially look after their child. Um, and also there was that obviously the stigma attached to that. So we don't get until we get the, illegit the, the Legitimacy Act in the 1920s, we don't really get any proper state support. Um, so everything largely is um, charitable. That's not to say there wasn't campaigns for uh, more support. It just took such a long time for um, state recognition and for that. So yeah, it's a really kind of emotive and interesting topic. The whole, the whole thing, you know, the, everything about you know what we've been discussing so far is is still, it is still emotive, and it it does have this sort of this depressingly current feel to it as I ask you my next question what at this time were the social attitudes surrounding the idea of controlling conception and was there a stigma attached to the note the notion that someone might want to choose when and indeed if to conceive yes absolutely and I think when we talk about availability there are lots of methods available but whether they're actually accessible um, or socially acceptable is a, is a different is a different question than I think they we must think about that um, together with availability. Mm. People were very much against the use of contraception and were so for lots of reasons. So controlling conception was thought to be against God's will, for example, and that God want it was God's will for people to go and have as many children as as they could, and so. Um, can try to control conception was, was, was going against that. 
Second, it was unnatural, and that's obviously related to um, the, the first point about religion, but um, it's more about the kind of the, the, the laws of nature as well as the laws of God. Um, thirdly, that practicing birth control was actually dangerous um, for the man in particular. If it was a waste of seed, so um, to kind of um, not not to use your seed could and keep, to keep it in the body was dangerous. But therefore, to just kind of have it out of the body and not be used to impregnate a woman was also dangerous and, uh, and a waste. And for women, that technologies that, that were inserted inside the body could do lasting damage. And obviously with, with poisons and, and in various abortifants that were used, that, that was indeed the case. It was actually dangerous. Um, so there were a lot of dangerous um, methods being used um, that gave credence to that argument. Um, I think it's interesting, something that I look at in my book is, is by um, the early 20th century and particularly into the interwar period, arguments largely used by social conservatives who are often religious as well, um, are also include the fact that contraception is seen as socially corrupting and not just um, corrupting to the individual. So um, the fact that use, the use of birth control promotes sex outside marriage, marriage is, is the kind of cornerstone of society and um, this promotion of birth control seeks to subvert that, seeks to promote promiscuity and also prostitution. So um, the increasing availability is seen as corrupting, to, particularly to the young and innocent. And there are, and this is related to kind of widespread fears about illegitimate teenage pregnancy in particular. What's interesting and something that I cover in the book is how do companies um, create and maintain a market for contraceptive goods while this um, stigma and these kind of negative social attitudes prevail because they don't really break down fully until after the Second World War, I would say. And so I look at the ways in which they conduct their business fairly, very discreetly, promoting contraceptives disguised euphemistically as hygienic appliances and uh, the wife's friend, for example, with condoms disguised as sweets and cigarette packets. And so um, the book is about how um, the companies kind of sub subvert these taboos and, and um, make a success of their business um, despite them. Straight away, I want to know about some of these techniques. So disguised as sweets and cigarette packets. Yes. How, how, how do you avoid kind of the mistake of because today we, we have these kind of bad jokes, don't we, about, you know, you walk into a chemist and you're asking for paracetamol and are you really asking for paracetamol you're asking for a condom but i mean i mean sweets and cigarettes that's that's a very different thing so how do they how are these distinctions made is it one of these things where everybody really knows what you're after yeah. but you know it's it's just that you the 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 outer packaging is a cigarette case or or whatever and so it's sort of less offensive inverted commas to sensibilities of the time yes I think that there's a lot going on with this question because um, <clears throat> a lot is companies wanted to target those who already knew what they were looking for um, in in terms of condoms, right? So if you if you know about condoms, you know what they are, even if they're disguised. But the thing is, the people that don't know what they are, um, 
are still ignorant about them. So it's maintaining a level of ignorance among um, certain people. And, and ignorance was incredibly widespread, um, more so than you might imagine, I think. And, and oral histories really do uncover the level of ignorance of um, of ways of getting pregnant, um, as particularly among women. So it's a way for companies to definitely sell to the market that they want to sell to, while at the same time maintaining that level of ignorance among um, people that, that, that don't know. And, um, and that really is, the, is their strategy. So, um, and, it, and it works remarkably well. And, and where, where the, the moral conservatives start um, getting concerned about this is when they think that this veneer of um, respectability and um, this level of ignorance is being broken. So when that when that threshold, when things are being too overt, too explicit, that's when the social conservatives become most concerned. Can I also tap into something that you were talking about just a little earlier, which was about the role of religion? The church, I mean, the church has got two ways of influencing this debate. One is potentially through charitable support that we were talking about earlier in terms of providing options for those who do find themselves with illegitimate children. Um, the other is that, you know, this is, you're talking here about religious teachings and the church perpetuates that. So how does this come together? Does the church just have a single line? I mean, obviously we're talking about multiple churches. So do you see distinctions between different faiths and denominations of faith as well? It's really, it's really interesting. And I think it's more complicated than people might think, because obviously, as you say, there are um, Christians on, on both sides of the, the, the debate and the social taboo, if you like. So certainly those against um, the use and widespread availability of contraception claim to be Christian and see it as unnatural and against God's will and corrupting social order and the traditional family, etc., um, um, with birth control being used. Um, but certainly those who are in favour of increasing the availability of contraception, particularly to poor women um, who, you know, who, who they see as suffering from the effects of simply having too many children, physically and mentally, they're also Christians. So um, there, there are Christians on both sides. And I think the, the Anglican church, um, obviously the predominant um, the Church of England um, <clears throat> in particular um, is more liberal than, say, the Catholic Church. So the, the story in England is different uh, to how it would be in France and Spain and, and, and Catholic countries. Um, and I think if you want to pin down the absolute role of the Church, the, the church of England, the important turning point um, in the Anglican Church was in 1930 when they declared that birth control was okay for the use between uh, married couples, and and uh, this um, has reportedly had a, had a significant effect on the uptake of contraceptive use, particularly among members of the church and also Christians in in England. Um, but more beyond Christianity, what what I've also found through my research and in the book is that. Um, Judaism um, plays an interesting role and um, lots of proponents both for and against contraceptives um, 
are very anti-Semitic because um, a lot of those that end up going into the contraceptive business as, as manufacturers or sellers or advertisers are Jewish and, and are largely Jewish emigres who have come to the East End or um, whenever at the end of the 19th century and see opportunities in what is seen as quite a shady, seedy business. And um, there are quite, you know, hostile anti-Semitic campaigns against them. Um, and so I think I'd, I went into that slightly in the book, but it's something that I'd like to go into more in further research because it's it's absolutely fascinating. And, and Marie Stokes, who I do look at, is, is known to have been um, a vocal anti-Semite. So, uh, but she's also an incredibly important person in, in the birth control movement in England. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I don't think I'm alone in having every sperm is sacred from Monty Python stuck in my head now. Um, <laughs> but before the widespread development of latex and the availability you know, that, that people could get things. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. In chemists or in shops. How did people access birth control before this I mean and how did they how did they hear about it mm. so latex latex was developed and used in, in in contraception from around the 1929 1930 that's when it first started being used and it allowed the quicker easier and cheaper production of condoms caps and diaphragms they were stronger more durable and apparently more comfortable for the wearer so we all think of durex um, and that was the first latex condom that was made by the London Rubber Company in around 1930. And it, it stands for durable, reliable and excellence. And it's um, amazing that the, that, is, that condom is still around today and that brand name is still still very well known. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And it starts in this period. Um, but um, what I think is interesting, and, and through my research I've recovered, that the supply of latex was there and latex production was possible, but demand for latex actually didn't meet supply until about the 1950s. So really those that were using contraceptives between the 1930s and the 1950s had preferences already for different kinds of contraceptive, mainstream rubber um, contraceptives or chemical contraceptives. So brand loyalty was a thing um, in, in birth control um, in the interwar period. And it took, a, it took a while for latex products to really become popular, even if we think they're technologically superior. So that would, that would be the first thing I'd say about latex. In terms of how people accessed the products before latex, um, so before about 1930, um, firstly through mail order, and that, that's a, a long-standing kind of method. And, and particularly in the 19th century, when the postal system improves and becomes cheaper, um, we, we see people looking at adverts in newspapers, magazines, um, and would apply for a catalogue of hygienic or surgical appliances, which they would know 
um, were birth control, but perhaps other people wouldn't know. And, and there have been mistakes of people sending for what they think are actual hygienic appliances and not hygienic appliances at all. And there are complaints about catalogues being sent to the wrong people, et cetera, et cetera. So mail order remains really important. Um, secondly, we get birth control clinics. And the first birth control clinics are established in 1921. There are two in London. And by 1930, there, there are around 12. And then that, that increases quite quickly from then on. So Marie Stokes sets up one of the first and um, the Society for the Provision of Birth Control Clinics um, sets one up too. And that, that, that association goes on to become the Family Planning Association. And these clinics um, aim to give married women greater control of their fertility by selling and fitting caps and douches and educating them on, on methods of birth control. Um, and these were most popular with middle class married women who already had children and didn't want any more. And we see doctors become quite heavily involved increasingly in, in these clinics um, because contraception birth control is not taught in medical schools until the late 19th century, uh, late 20th century. So ignorance among medical practitioners is, is still really quite high into the 20th century. Um, the third way is, is, is through different retailers. If there were contraceptives that could be disguised as hygienic appliances like douches and syringes that could be used to kind of wash out other parts of the body, then they weren't as controversial and they were sold at department stores and Selfridges certainly sold them, um, Woolworths and places like that. And that wasn't controversial. Condoms obviously were available from the 18th century, at least uh, from barbers. Um, this where we get this phrase, something for the weekend, sir, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, etc. But also, yeah, we get them from chemists in the not from the 19th century. Although, yes, there was lots of evidence of consumers being too embarrassed to ask for them. There's also a new form of retailer that appears after the First World War called the surgical store, which specializes in contraception. And that, that's seen as quite a seedy place, as it often um developed from a form of um, bookstore that sold pornography. So there is um, kind of respectable companies that are trying to be um, that are trying to be medical, if you like, and there are non-respectable ones that are linked to kind of pornography. Um, and so there are a lot of these surgical stores and apparently there is at least one in every town across the country by 1930. What's also interesting is uh, at this time is that when latex condoms first appear, vending machines stocking them start to appear on street corners, outside pubs, outside chemist shops. And it's th that development, really, that um, is too much, too explicit for the social conservatives. And they're appalled at this development because it gives free, unmonitored access um, to contraceptives to the to the innocent and vulnerable so a kind of campaign from social conservatives um, led to the removal of vending machines selling condoms on, on street corners by 1950. And they sort of re-emerged later in men's toilets. So there are lots of different ways in which people could access them, but it's about knowing how to access them. And lots of people didn't. So When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can I dig into these kind of cases of mistaken identity? And because because I've got visions of people sort of, you know, they, they order a particular thing that they think is going to help with a medical issue. And then actually, you know, some contraceptives land on their doorstep, courtesy of the postman. Yeah. What what do we know about their reactions and the kind of the examples and the kinds of things that are happening? You know, what what are people ordering that they end up mistakenly ordering condoms? Do you see the inverse happening as well? You know, do people because of this ambiguity, do people kind of go to order? condoms or other contraceptives and then in fact actually get you know a uh i don't know quite what kind of surgical instrument you'd, you'd get um but do you see it happening in yeah. both directions well i think there's a distinction to be made between condoms and and kind of more, more female methods because condoms really are only associated with sex and that's all you can associate them with either birth control or venereal disease something like a syringe which is obviously to wash out an orifice, can be used for ears, noses. So, you know, people would order them as medical devices, um, but they would also be sold by contraceptive sellers. So, um, you know, it's difficult to come across evidence of people saying, I use this syringe for this purpose, but certainly um, contraceptive manufacturers and sellers would sell these medical things um, as a way of kind of adding on their, con- their their condom line, if you like. So to kind of, they were used as a way of medicalizing their very sexual products, if you like. So yeah, you, you, you don't, I don't think you, there's no evidence of people ordering condoms, particularly by mistake, although the social campaigners, the social conservatives would say that, oh, all these young people are ordering condoms and they don't know what they are. But that's kind of like a moral panic. So we don't really know how accurate that is um, and how seriously to take their concerns. Um, uh, But certainly there is an overlap between kind of medical purposes and contraceptive purposes for certain certain devices. Um, Yeah. So as we start to move closer to the present day are there any big revolutionary moments in the availability of contraception other than obviously latex which we've we've discussed Mm. well um i think there's a lot of disagreements about revolutionary moments among historians of contraception and some would certainly say that in the 20th century latex was the kind of the revolutionary moment but as I suggested earlier, I don't, I don't think it's not necessarily can be defined as revolutionary because de- demand didn't meet supply until at least 20 years later. So I think progress was slower um, in that respect. 
obviously the the availability of the contraceptive pill in the 1960s has been heralded as totally revolutionary um, by lots of people and lots of historians. But I, I mean, while I think it's certainly widened access to lots of people and, and to women in particular, um, it didn't impact everyone. And I don't think it was revolutionary, therefore, for, for everyone. Um, and um, the historiography of the 1960s at the moment seems to suggest that um, things were still a bit more conservative than we would think, um, perhaps. Um, so, and also I would say that both of these points about latex and about the contraceptive pool are quite technologically determinist. And I see the history of contraception as a bit more multifaceted and um, think that the increasing availability of contraception happened really due to a series of moments. Perhaps they're revolutionary moments, but these moments all kind of converged at the same time. So, for example, I think the two world wars had a really important impact of, on social attitudes um, towards um, birth control. Um, after the First World War, the devastation that it brought um, not only changed kind of family structures, um, families lost several children, um, obviously, um, in war. So it changed family dynamics, family structure, but also represented a turning point to walk away from kind of Edwardian attitudes towards modern, um, technologically, scientifically based um, attitudes. Um, and so people were self-describing themselves as modern. And with that, we have changing attitudes towards reproduction, that it should be separated, um, that, that love um, is more important than reproduction and that sex should be separated from reproduction. Um, and so there are modern attitudes there towards, um, towards sex. And we can see this if we look at the circulation of different types of print culture, not just advertising, but newspapers that begin to talk about birth control explicitly and openly, um, as well as kind of new genres of women's magazines. We have Mary Stokes' Married Love, published in 1918, which is one of the best-selling books on, on sex of all time, although to our mind it, is, it doesn't really say anything, um, <laughs> as well as setting up lots of birth control clinics and, and obviously middle-class campaigners who, who are seeking to raise public consciousness around, um, around birth control. Um, and um, sexologists and sex educators as well. And obviously doctors begin to endorse contraceptive use in the interwar period. The church start to in 1930, scientists begin to see it as an object of scientific inquiry. And then after World War II, you know, World War II provides soldiers for the first time with free condoms, um, for the, obviously for the protection of, against venereal disease. Um, but knowledge again is increased um, among the soldier cohort um, who take that knowledge home of birth control uh, and then um, it allows kind of condoms in particular to become more socially acceptable and also we shouldn't forget the importance of knowledge passed through communication networks through work through friendship groups through school um, so as birth control became sayable and the words birth control became sayable, became part of public discourse, knowledge spread. So um, I don't know if that's revolutionary as such. It's kind of a series of moments that all sort of happen at the same time uh, and make birth control just much more socially acceptable. 
Can I just touch on what you were saying there about soldiers? Do you see a distinction in, you know, people talking about prevention of venereal disease versus prevention of conception? Because obviously we know from a modern perspective that, you know, the, the nature of sexually transmitted infections means that they become pretty much one and the same thing. But do you see kind of concerns about disease leading to a different set of conversations to that do or, or don't kind of link into conversations around birth control? Is there a distinction that gets made? I think, again, with regard to con condoms, um, particularly, because that is obviously the method um, with, with female contraceptives, not so much. But again, I think that, yeah, the same, the same similar sorts of social stigmas apply around venereal disease. Um, again, you know, medical practitioners are not keen on um, getting involved in venereal disease a lot of the time um, because it's, you know, it's seen as um, a seedy as, as, and they're not keen on, on, on getting involved in contraception. So it is left to um, non-orthodox practitioners to kind of write about and talk about these things, even though it's, you know, widespread and happening. Um, and recent research has suggested that, you know, in the First World War, people thought that, that condoms were given to, to soldiers then, but there's actually no evidence of that. And what they were doing is more like chemical treatments because um, they couldn't abide discussing kind of prevention for fear or that soldiers would go out and visit prostitutes. So it's, it's almost like if you say it, you will encourage it to happen. So there was no discussion of it. So the, what they did was provide chemical treatments after the fact um, uh, because it was so unsayable. So these same sorts of stigmas do apply to both, although the, the contexts are slightly different. And the way in which um, kind of respectable companies try to, um, yeah, companies try to be respectable is by disassociating themselves with, with venereal disease because that's associated with prostitution. Whereas once birth control starts to become accepted, it's more associated with married couples limiting their family and that's becoming acceptable. So um, I think, yeah, they start in the same sort of place, but then they diverge as birth control becomes more, more accepted, I think. So, yeah. Gosh, I'm going to jump in with a follow-up from this and uh, and and say say what's on my mind, Claire. <laughs> so when we when we're talking about soldiers, we're talking about men, and this this attitude towards birth control at this time as contraception for health reasons rather than to prevent conception. We are we seeing a moment where I mean. That anything that happens, any issue from from said sexual encounter, is the responsibility and problem of the woman. Mm. For the man, we're talking about you need to use these products because it will keep you healthy and it will keep you fighting. Not, don't worry about her; it's her mm. problem. <laughs> well, that's it, absolutely. And I think this is a, a kind of reason that um, sexual attitudes do slight do change after the Second World War because there's a lot of, you know things weren't normal and you know sexual relations weren't normal people had affairs um women had affairs with soldiers soldiers went to prostitutes so there was a kind of suspension of normal morality if you like 
Um, and then obviously the aftermath was that there were a lot of children fathered by soldiers. Um, that's just what happened. Um, but because it was kind of not not happening during normal times, um, there was almost a shrug of the shoulders about it. So I think um, the war context is, is really quite interesting um, and does change things. But yeah, certainly you're absolutely right. The, the concern around um, soldiers is for the health, their own health, not the health of the prostitutes or anybody else, um, and therefore the health of the nation so they could continue fighting. And there's great evidence of, you know, colonels and, and loot, various kind of um, higher ups in the army who, who order condoms en masse from the Family Planning Association and, and other companies to for their soldiers. So they are thinking about giving them to their soldiers, knowing full well that they'll that they'll they're going to be promiscuous at the very least. So yeah. Can I ask just one question to kind of wrap this up, which is we talked a lot about lots of different tales and um, you've kind of alluded to a number of different sources. How do you kind of gain insight into popular perceptions on something that is, as we've kind of discussed, very taboo, but it's also essentially a very private matter? How do you kind of get to this material? It's a really good question. <clears throat> And um, I think cultural contexts are really are really interesting as well because obviously the British are, are not known for necessarily being the most open <laughs> about certain things either, so often quite embarrassed and shy about these things. Um, and I think that's come through in a lot of oral histories. And I think lots of historians have conducted great oral histories recently. Um, and I think oral history has loads of benefits to it, um, not just about the kind of what's, the why's, the where's and all the rest of it um, of access and use, but also about how people felt and still feel about it. So and this is that's something I think that not many other forms of evidence can really help you uncover. So, you know, the blurring over certain details, the embarrassment, the, the using of euphemisms for certain things like all. Oh, I would get off the bus at wherever to, to describe withdrawal, for example, is something that comes out of some oral histories, right? So you're getting off before your stop is, is, is um, uh, a euphemism for withdrawal. And, um, you know, misremembering details. So that's an important part of the methods, I think, of, of oral history. And it is so fascinating. But also, I, I really do take seriously um, print culture. And I think that we could learn a lot more um, by taking print culture seriously, by looking at the variety of publications on birth control and sex more generally, particularly from the interwar period. We can find out a lot about circulation figures, production numbers, types of readers. Of course, you know, getting at whether people actually read it and how they read it is, is difficult. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, I think we, we can do it and um, we should do it. Um, to get a greater insight on these popular perceptions question. I think correspondence is also a really fantastic source. Um, the letters, the thousands of letters that people wrote to Marie Stopes, um, for example, um, asking for her help in sexual matters following the publication of Married Love. Um, it's just an absolute treasure trove of people's most inner thoughts and concerns. Um, I took my students there to the Welcome Library to see some of the letters. Um, and the first letter that they they came across was one from a really concerned man 
who didn't know what an average size penis was and wanted Marie Stopes' opinion on whether his penis was too big. So obviously this amused my students quite a lot, but it really does reveal about how ignorant um, people were about the body even and about um, sex in general. So it's just an absolutely fantastic source. I was very lucky um, and found um, a batch of letters written by customers to one of Britain's most um, popular contraceptive companies. And it's amazing that they, the consumers in these letters not only use, use correspondence to place orders um, for a mail order, but also they talk about their family situation, their sex life, how often they've used contraception, what contraception. Um, so just absolutely fascinating the amount of detail that we can get from this. For, for historians of you know, the 20th century, Mass Observation Archive is also an absolute treasure trove um, and has a lot about sexual morality and um, birth control. So that's great, too. Um, I think essentially there there isn't really one form of evidence that can provide this comprehensive picture. Um, But I think to get the best sense possible, we need to piece together a huge array of different types of evidence. And I think it's really exciting that... um, you know, historians like me get the opportunity to do that. So, yeah. It's amazing. And thank you so much for, for sharing this work with us, because it is it's it's one of those subjects that, yes, whilst being emotive is is current as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. <laughs> you must roll your eyes sometimes when looking at the news coming out of, say, Texas, for example. Yes. I mean, yeah, the subjects. The kind of focus is somewhat different, but the moral, the moral panics, the moral conservatism remains very similar. And the arguments used about censorship and um, a kind of control of women's bodies remains very similar as well. So, yeah, lots of parallels. Well, thank you again. Please come and talk to us again anytime you want, because, you know, Zach and I are, are totally here for it. We've, um, we've had a lovely time talking to you. Dr. Claire Jones, thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, folks. Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. 
With that in mind, we set up the History Hacked bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.